You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon, reporting remotely for WFHB. This is Don Guerra. And I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, November 15th, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB Assistant News Director Noelle Herhusky-Schneider continues her coverage on the Buffalo Springs Restoration Project. She speaks with Marion Mason and Chris Thornton from the U.S. Forest Service for the second part of the interview. More coming up at today's feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita announced last week that he plans to file a lawsuit against the federal government over a vaccine mandate for large employers. More coming up in your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Council meeting on November 9th, Community Resilience Coordinator for the Environmental Resilience Institute, Cody Smith, presented next steps for the Hoosier Readiness Assessment. We have provided Monroe County with a next steps report. What that is, is it's looking at the next steps for climate resilience in Monroe County. While you are excelling at emergency management and other areas, as you look to achieve greater climate resilience in the county, uh, it's important to review lower scoring areas from the readiness assessment so that we can look at what those actions are. And for the sake of this presentation, I've mimicked the report as closely as possible, which follows these four categories that are listed here. Social and financial burden, preparing for extreme heat, preparing for extreme precipitation and river flooding, and then a general category that is other actions to consider. It's important to note that all of these investments that you're going to make, according to the Building Trades Council, uh, they say that a dollar invested in hazard mitigation yields $6 in benefits over time. Smith said that Monroe County should invest in ways to ensure individuals who are marginalized in the community are prioritized with climate change preparation, since they are more vulnerable to the hardest hit by the impact of climate change. He explained that due to climate change, Monroe County is experiencing more rainfall and severe storms and should be aware that surface and river flooding will be a large concern for the county in the near future. In this developed area of Ellettsville, uh, you can see that the uh, it's very much in the floodplain. And so what we want to make sure that what we're doing, and I'm not trying to call Ellettsville out, I'm just trying to make sure that we have an example uh, of what we can do as a local government in building a more resilient future for our community. We can identify those house, the houses and businesses who are most susceptible. That's what this map is aimed at doing. And make sure that we develop and adopt policies and procedures for not only post-flood repairs, but also mitigation and make sure that we have the resources in place and the plans in place to respond when these disasters happen. And we know that precipitation is falling more so in the winter and spring months here in Indiana and will continue to do so. And as we saw earlier, it's already increased by 8.1 inches of precipitation uh, historically. So this is something that I think is a really actionable and important item for Monroe County to consider as well. Smith gave actionable recommendations from the ERI they believe are within the reach of the local government and would increase Monroe County's resilience to climate change, 
suggestions include passing a tree canopy ordinance, promoting energy efficiency and waste heat reduction, educating residents of impacts on poor air quality, and creating a warning system to alert residents when air pollution is poor and promoting local food purchasing. Councilmember Trent Deckard thanked Smith for the presentation and said he has been noticing the flooding concerns himself. Particularly around the flooding um, numbers that you were providing, I have anecdotally felt that and heard that from a lot of constituents and just business leaders and community members across the board um, acutely over the last particularly 10, 14 years or so. Councilmember Peter Iverson also commented that while the U.S. is working on a national level to mitigate the effects of climate change, Monroe County is working on a local level to address concerns closer to home. As we're awaiting the final uh, results of COP26 later this week, um, Cody's absolutely right that Monroe County and the Environmental Resilience Institute will continue to try and work together to uh, solve uh, uh, a lot of these issues around climate crisis and to be more resilient as a community. So keep watching Monroe County. There's good things coming. Council member Cheryl Munson asked about whether or not the city of Bloomington and the town of Ellettsville have taken the Hoosier Readiness Index assessment. Smith said Bloomington has taken the assessment and heard a similar presentation. However, Ellettsville has not done so yet. Smith said the Environmental Resilience Institute is still more than happy to work with their community. The next county council meeting will be held on December 14th. At the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on November 10th, Commissioner Penny Githens notified the commissioners of an opportunity to support Beacon Incorporated. This would help pledge financial support to secure a grant for a kitchen and winter shelter for people experiencing homelessness in Monroe County. Beacon oversees multiple entities such as Shalom Place and Friends Place, and they're just bursting at the seams, literally. Um, they, we don't have a winter shelter and an emergency winter shelter set up like we were able to do last year. And so the folks at Beacon Inc. Um, have been looking to build a new building, essentially. It's going to be very costly, but the um, building will be multi-story with the bottom floor uh, providing a kitchen is the what they're envisioning, uh, but a kitchen larger than what they would actually need just for feeding their clients. It would also be a kitchen where they could do some job training. Um, they're hoping that they could use that first floor also for an emergency winter shelter and for a low barrier shelter, as well as to do the kinds of programming that they're already doing with people. The second floor they view as a higher barrier shelter place for people to stay. And then on the top floor, they're looking to put in apartments so that people have more stable housing. Um, they estimate the cost of this uh, new building would be at about $10 million. And they have an opportunity through um, the 2022 Indiana Supportive Housing Institute to obtain up to $5 million of that cost, um, which is would be a big boost to what's going on in our community. And would, we've all been involved with things with the Heading Home Plan. And so it would be additional ways to, to help our unhoused homeless. Commissioner Julie Thompson said that the letter of support for Beacon Incorporated would be a good thing for everyone in the community. Uh, that would be um, benefits everyone in this community in numerous ways um, and, and 
would make a huge difference in a lot of lives. The commissioners and the council will meet next week to agree upon the letter of support for Beacon. At the Bloomington Arts Commission meeting on November 10th, Assistant Director for the Arts, Holly Warren, updated the board on last Friday's John Waldron Arts Center press conference. So we did have a press conference at the Waldron Arts Center on uh, Friday evening just to update the public and let them know that we do have every intention of reopening the space in early January 2022. We're hoping to have a kickoff event um, that both celebrates the overall reopening of the space, but also highlights the 29th anniversary of WFHB, who has been a longtime resident of the space. They're going to celebrate their 29th anniversary. Um, Basically, on the same date that we're reopening the facility. Um, So as plans for that come into place, I'll be sharing more information. Commissioner Nick Blandford discussed a stipend to artists involved in the ribbon cutting of the Trades District Garage art installation. He said the Windfall Dance Company would perform at the opening of the Trades District Garage in December and then again in spring. Warren said she was looking up industry standards and wage tools to ensure a fair and respectful wage for the performances and their original choreography. I think I can definitely take some time to just kind of learn like more about what the standards are here. But also, again, I think I mentioned the wage tool um, last week that is just this great tool that many arts entities use to based on their overall budget and based on what kind of work it is, is it an original work or is it just like a repeat of a dance performance or a lecture to determine like what the fairest cost is? So um, if I could have just about a week to do that research. They will continue to discuss the stipend at the next meeting on December 8th. According to state health officials, four out of 10 Indiana adults are not fully vaccinated against COVID-19. On Friday, the Indiana State Department of Health reported that nearly 60% of Indiana residents ages 18 and older are fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, the Joe Biden administration has announced it will require a vaccine mandate for all state and local governments and businesses with over 100 employees. The vaccine mandate would apply to Indiana. However, Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita announced he would file a lawsuit in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals against the federal government over the vaccine mandate for large employers. Rokita said in a statement last Thursday, quote, This is a direct attack on states' rights. This is a direct attack on individual liberties and freedom, and it's an overreach of the federal government, end quote. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb says he supports the lawsuit. Holcomb directed the Indiana Department of Labor to work together with Rukita on the lawsuit. In a statement, Holcomb said, quote, While I agree that the vaccine is the tool that will best protect against COVID-19, this federal government approach is unprecedented and will bring about harmful, unintended consequences in the supply chain and the workforce, end quote. If proven successful against the lawsuit, workers will have until January 4th of next year to get vaccinated or deal with weekly testing. In today's feature report, WFHB Assistant News Director Noelle Herhusky-Schneider 
continues her coverage on the Buffalo Springs Restoration Project. She speaks with Marion Mason and Chris Thornton from the U.S. Forest Service. Part one of that interview aired last Wednesday. In today's broadcast, we hear the second part of the conversation. So this is part of the U.S. Forest Service and the Department of Agriculture. And I think a lot of people in Indiana are very familiar with um, what happened in Yellowwood. Can you explain like the differences between like these types of, I think that was managed by the state and this is yeah. national. So it, right? is, it is confusing to people. We all wear a uh, you know, green uniform with a tan shirt and uh, oftentimes we get called the DNR. Um, so the DNR is a state agency, and they manage the state forests and the state recreation areas and state wildlife areas, natural areas. The Hoosier National Forest is a federal agency, so we're in the Department of Agriculture, and uh, we, we manage the national forest, obviously. So it's a, it's confusing because the signs all look similar, and like I said, the people look similar, the uniforms look similar, so... I understand the the confusion, but yeah, the take home is um, the Department of Natural Resources is a state of Indiana agency. Hoosier National Forest is a federal agency. And just to segue on that, the the Hoosier is broken up into what's called management areas, um, or another way to think of that is areas of zone that are zoned differently. So you mentioned the Dean Wilderness. You know that's that's. 20 some thousand acres of, uh, or a little less than that, of, uh, you know, acreage where we're just going to let it go. Um, it's going to, it's got different rules in it. You, know, you can't have motorized equipment in it, anything like that. So it's a, it's a different, different area, but still part of the national forest. About half of the national forest in the 2006 plan was off limits to commercial harvesting. So, all those areas, you know, around the Lake Monroe area um, and any areas that have special significance to them ecologically or historically, you know, all those areas are part of that 100,000 acres that are just going to continue to grow. So it's, it's yeah, it's interesting. Just, I don't think a lot of people know that uh, the whole forest isn't available for projects like this, just certain parts that are identified in the 2006 plan. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are concerned about this happening in Orange County, and I, I'm personally excited about that. I'm glad that they're concerned. I think it's really important that we all are very aware that, you know, we're part of this ecosystem. We're the forest in us, like we, we rely on each other. And so I'm really excited that more people will get to know about this. I've met with some of the people that were concerned in Orange County a couple weeks ago, and we had a good discussion about hour and 15 minutes long of, uh, you know, different parts of the project, different ideas, a lot of the stuff we've talked about today. But, you know, we ended with agreeing that we, we probably agree on what to do on the land most of the time. Um, we, everybody has a passion for, for their, their public lands. And I think that's a, you know, that's a really neat thing to embrace. So, even though I know there's disagreement about parts of this proposal, I think everybody is on board wanting to do what they think is best for the Hoosier National Forest. And 
I, I think that's great. I, I like to listen to the different opinions, and um, it, it's part of managing public land. So if people did want to make public comment, could you kind of give them a rundown, kind of like more of a detailed, because sometimes starting is the hardest part, just kind of like how they would do that? So, yeah, the, the information is contained in the scoping letter, which is on the Hoosier National Forest website. For this first round, it's you know, depending on what they want to do, they could uh, they could write a letter to to the team leader. His name's Kevin Amick. The the address is in the the scoping package toward the end of it. Um, they could send an email. That's in there too. I believe our fax number is in there too. Uh, many different methods, or or a phone call to Kevin is is fine as well. So. Whatever method people are comfortable with these days, um, we'd be happy to listen to them. Stephen mentioned that they were concerned about the prescribed burns, mm-hmm. and I've learned about those in some of my classes. Uh, I think they were concerned about smoke and pe- like after COVID. Can you just explain what's going on there? Yeah, so there's a lot of burning proposed in this project. Burning really, it was done historically by the Native Americans and the early European settlers. And when we decided back several decades ago now that we should start extinguishing forest fires, and that, that, that really has changed what is regenerating in our forests. So those areas that are xeric are really dry that should be oak sites now have beech and maple growing, you know, underneath the big oak trees and inhibiting the oaks from regenerating. So by adding fire back to the ecosystem in a, in a controlled way, a prescribed way, we, uh, we, we can start to shift that regeneration back to the oak hickory that we want on those prior sites. So you mentioned smoke. Smoke is our biggest concern. Um, we have, on average, uh, between 10 and 20 days where the weather is okay to burn. And then we look at smoke dispersal. So we work with the National Weather Service to get a spot weather forecast where we want the smoke to go up rather than lay on the ground and, and go, you know, bother people. I mean, if we're burning in the area, they're probably going to smell a little smoke because it is a, a big operation, but we don't want to inundate people with smoke and certainly are wary of health concerns. And if people have a health concern, we uh, we, we want to be able to notify them that the, the fire is going to happen on a certain day. Now, sometimes we don't know because you know how the weather is. It can, uh, it can change abruptly. I've been to several prescribed burns where we took the weather one last time and it wasn't right. So we walked away and came back another day. And that's, that's not unusual. I mean, you just... We, we want certain things to happen with that fire. We don't want it to be too hot. We don't want it to be too hard to light either. So there's a sweet spot there. So the people that have concerns about the smoke, um, they'll be, if they're an adjacent landowner or they have concerns, they can call into our forest service office and let them know. And none of these burns are going to happen in the next few years. It's going to take a while to get through all this analysis and it'll be a while before all that comes to be. But Every year, uh, we we also issue maps on our website where and press releases where the burns are going to be for the spring and the fall, 
And, you know, if people see that it's near them or they're concerned about them, there's information in that press release to call, get your name on a list to be notified. Um, we make all those calls the morning of the burn or the evening before just to let people know what's going on. Because I, I know there's a lot of concern about uh, fire. I think people picture the Western version of that, which uh, that is not what we want to happen here. Very, very careful to pick the appropriate days. We've got people that that's their job. They're, that's their job is to look at the weather, develop a large thing called a burn plan for each burn, all the site-specific information. They model where the smoke would go with certain winds and weather conditions. So it's a it's uh, as exact as the science can be that's based on weather. Um, if we get in the middle of the burn and the weather isn't right, we'll, we'll end it then, too, at a, at a different like intermediate boundary. Um, there's quite a science behind picking the right day for a burn to not be a bad neighbor to the people that live next door to you. I want to revisit one question that I had. When the trees are cut, why aren't they just left on the forest floor? So one of the one of the things the National Forest does is different. So we're we're in the Department of Agriculture, so we provide a product, in this case trees. Um, I think people get us confused with a national park, where they would let the tree just lay there, and then it'd be more of a natural sequence of it, uh, you know, degrading and and turning back into soil over many 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 years. So. One of the things that Congress tasks us to do is provide a supply of timber to the local economy and, you know, not not just any supply, a sustainable supply. So one of the things our 2006 forest plan does is set a quantity called the allowable sale quantity that we can we can harvest or sell off, off the national forest every year without running the danger of, uh, you know, Getting getting to a point where our volume is decreasing on the entire forest, so we don't want that. We want it to keep increasing. We want to manage in a you know environmentally environmentally sensitive way, create the habitat that we want, and yet also provide the forest product that Congress wants us to do. Public comment for the restoration project is scheduled to end today. If you're a resident looking to make any public comments, you can send an email to kevin.amic at usda.gov with the subject line, Buffalo Springs Restoration Project. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB Community Radio. You can find the full program at wfhb.org or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Six facilities that are part of New York's prison system will close next March amid a decade-long decline in the number of people the state incarcerates. The closures, announced Monday by State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision officials, scheduled for March 10, 2022, are Ogdensburg Correctional Facility, Mariah Schock Incarceration Correctional Facility, Willard Drug Treatment Campus, 
Southport Correctional Facility, Downstate Correctional Facility, and Rochester Correctional Facility. No layoffs are anticipated, and the cost cutting through the closures is expected to save $142 million. Spokesman Tom Malley said in his statement, quote, DOCCS will work closely with the various bargaining units to provide staff with opportunities for priority placement via voluntary transfers, as well as priority employment at other facilities or other state agencies as a result of the formal civil service process that is followed with the closure of a correctional facility, end quote. State officials reviewed about 50 facilities for potential closure before selecting the six that will close next year. All of the facilities slated for closure have populations below 1,000 people, and some are operating at less than half capacity. The closures are the latest in a line of prison facilities to be shuttered by New York in the last 10 years, as the number of people in prison has steadily declined. New York's population of incarcerated people stands at 31,469, the lowest number since 1984. However, New York's prisons still hold roughly two times more incarcerated people today than in the 1970s. Advocates for criminal justice law reform called for further action from the governor, including the more frequent use of clemency and action on measures meant to make parole easier for older people in prison. Quote, The governor must use her clemency powers frequently, inclusively, and transparently. She can and should end mass incarceration with the stroke of a pen said Jose Saldana, the director of the Release Aging People in Prison campaign. He continued, quote, The legislator must pass the elder parole and fair and timely parole bills. Without these measures, and despite these closures, thousands will continue to needlessly languish behind bars, end quote. The Board of Correction is meant to serve as an independent check on the entire New York City jail system and to ensure that those in city custody are treated humanely. It has the power to inspect the city's jails at any time, even daily, and issues reports which function as open letters on jail conditions or public notices that the Department of Correction has violated its rules. The Board has a $3.3 million budget covering some 30 employees who are supposed to oversee a $1.2 billion jail system and its more than 9,000 Department of Correction workers. Yet the board has not issued any notices of violation during the COVID-19 pandemic, not even after board members had documented horrible conditions while investigating a death at the Rikers Island jail complex in April. During COVID, out of concern for both the health of staff members and detainees, the board cut back its visits significantly. Now, staff go into the jails, but they are not required to. When the board does make critical findings, it often has not shared them. A report on the first three deaths of Rikers detainees from COVID-19 was not released publicly until a public defender organization saw it using the state's freedom of information law. Even then, it was in draft form and the board redacted the report's recommendations. As conditions worsened inside Rikers this summer, the board canceled its meeting in July and was unable to reschedule it for August because it could not summon enough of its members to meet the required quorum. You're the oversight, Dr. Victoria A. Phillips, who works with the Urban Justice Center, testified at the board's meeting in September. 
oversee this work, make sure it happens. Please do it before someone else dies. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Noel Herhusky-Schneider. Kiteline is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Nikki Stewart-Ingersoll. And I'm Don Guerra. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear today's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. You can be part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at WFHB.org. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 